You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. For those that are visiting with us today, um, this is our what we call Application Sunday. It's a day that we take um, every six to eight weeks or so here um, to really try to focus back in on things that we've been studying and learning over those past six to eight weeks. And so we review some of the sermons that we've had. We talk about some of the application points and then really strive to come up with some clear application direction for you in response to the things that we've been learning together. And so I want to do that again today. Um, Looking back over the past couple of weeks, we've been working through the book of Hebrews chapter by chapter. So we do have a lot of content to cover this morning um, as a matter of review. And so we'll try to do that as quickly as possible, um, really focusing as much as possible on the application for us as a church moving forward. Okay. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter one. I want us to uh, attempt to read through the six chapters that we've covered, just because um, I want us to, to be reminded of the context of some of the things that we've been learning. Um, and because we've done it chapter by chapter, it is a little bit more that we'll do uh, this morning as far as the reading goes, but um, I do want to give um, appropriate attention to God's Word in response to the things that we've been learning. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, the scepter of the uprightness and the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, When the heavens are the work of your hands, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? We began our series on Hebrews talking about the purpose of the book and why we were seeking to study it and what we hope to gain from that. So just as a reminder, we talked about the book of Hebrews uh, really showing that Jesus is better and and specifically showing us that Jesus is superior to all things found in this life, giving us great reason to hold fast to him while encouraging others to do the same when we are tempted to abandon our faith due to persecution and or temptation from this world. And so even as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, there's a lot of discussion about apostasy, about people abandoning the faith for a variety of reasons, but really falling under two categories of difficult times, trials that cause us to doubt God's goodness and would cause us to kind of wander from the faith, or through temptation where the things of this world become more attractive than the holy things that God has called us to as his followers. And so 
Both categories, trials and temptations, weigh heavily upon us and can tempt us greatly to apostatize or to wander from the faith, to drift away due to hardness of heart. And so the author of Hebrews writes to these people and encourages them throughout the book to hold fast to their anchor, to hold fast to Jesus, to not wander from the faith because Jesus is better. Okay, so we saw that theologically we're wanting to see that Jesus is better. Practically, we're wanting to hold fast to him because of that. And so there's a lot of theology and doctrine contained in the book of Hebrews, but a lot of practical implications as well. And so that got into Hebrews chapter one for us, where we see Jesus is better than the prophets and the angels. And so that second week, we talked about Jesus being the climactic conclusion to God's progressive revelation about himself and his plan, giving us great cause to trust and follow him with our lives. All right, so we saw that Prophets and angels, they're messengers that come from God with a message from God to tell mankind about God. And Jesus fits into that category, but he's better than both. He's better than prophets. He's better than angels. And Hebrews chapter 1 tells us why, right? That, that he is equal with God, that he's more than a prophet. He's more than an angel. And even the message that he brings is greater than the messages that the prophets and angels were able to bring because they brought messages about God that were, were not complete, right? So in the Old Testament, a lot of things are pointing us to Jesus, but it's not until Jesus shows, back, shows up that really gives meaning to a lot of the things in the Old Testament. Um, and that was hard for the people to really grasp their minds with. And that's why even in um, the last couple of chapters that we've looked at, there's the challenge to the people to kind of grow up into their faith so that they can receive some of these weightier doctrines. Because these things were really new revelation for them. They, they didn't grasp how the Messiah fit into uh, some of the things that Jesus had been doing. They, they, they had different expectations for him, right? And so God had been progressively revealing himself, and boom, Jesus shows up and is kind of the conclusion to that revelation about who God is. Jesus brings everything to completion. He brings all these yeses to God's promises, okay? And so we see that in chapter 1. And from an application standpoint, we talked about when times are tough, trust the one guiding things for good purposes. And when times are tempting, trust the one who is working to fix you. And I really highlighted in chapter one that week, the very beginning of the chapter, where it says that um, these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we see all this aspect of Jesus being the creator, Jesus being the sustainer of all things, that he's working and moving throughout creation. But then we see very specifically what he's up to. It says in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we talked about Jesus coming to really uh, not just forgive sins, but to bring purification, to really bring radical change to his creation. So yes, he upholds the universe. Yes, he keeps the sun and the moon in their proper places to give us the proper environment on this earth. But he does far more than that. He's working and moving in the hearts of mankind to rescue them from their sin and to bring them back to a state of fellowship with him. So his sovereignty is not just over the universe from a scientific standpoint, but his sovereignty is over the, 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 the will and the choices that man is making. He is radically changing us through the power of the Holy Spirit to conform to the image of his son. So from a response application today, right? So what, what, what do we do moving forward? Man, I think it's really important that we take this time, because of everything that we're talking about in the book of Hebrews, don't wander from the faith, 
Don't allow sin and temptation and trials to cause you to stumble and cause you to drift. To use this as a time to, to pause and step back and say, have I communicated to my accountability group what my current struggles and temptations are? I mean, this is a great time to just kind of refresh that discussion because, um, you know, I know some accountability groups don't always get to meet as frequently as they want to. And, and I know that sometimes our accountability groups are bigger than we want. And so maybe not everybody gets a chance to talk as much as they would like to. But I, mean, I think this is a really important time based on what we're discussing in Hebrews for everybody to kind of reshare any current struggles, any current temptations that may be pressing in on your life so that we can be in prayer for those things together within our accountability groups. Um, things that would potentially, if left unchecked, cause us to potentially stumble and drift. Uh, that we identify those things and we show a desire to push back against those things by, by communicating to others how they can exhort us, right? Because part of what we've talked about is that we need the exhortation of others to hold fast. <clears throat> and the best way for people to exhort you is for you to communicate things that you need to be exhorted about, right? So <clears throat> I would encourage everybody from an immediate application point to, to really step back and to communicate any current temptations or struggles um, that your, your accountability group can be praying for you <coughs> about, okay? Let's move into chapter two now. And so the only new information that I'm giving you today is in blue. So if you're taking notes, writing anything down, these are the things to jot down. Um, and I'll post these on the city as well. But, but these are the things to really dial in on because everything else I've given to you previously, this is the new stuff that, that I really want us to take. Because a lot of times the application uh, is more question than, than action. So today, everything's real action-based in, in light of some of the questions that I've asked you to think through recently through this sermon, okay? So if you got your Bibles, keep those open. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you were mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, <coughs> he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God has given, or I and the children of God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews chapter 2, we talked about rather than neglecting our salvation and drifting from the faith, we must glorify God with our lives based on his word, which is our purpose for existence, by seeking the all-sufficient help of Jesus. And so we talked about um, the need to really dial into the things that God is teaching us and saying to us because the message of Jesus is far greater than the messages that came previously through prophets and angels. And if there was judgment for mankind not responding to those messages, how much greater would the judgment be to not respond to the message of Jesus, right? And then we said, um, that it was really important to see that, that God has, has given each of us different lives, different circumstances, but it's our job to glorify him with whatever life he has, choosing, he has chosen to give us. Because it says, um, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the foundation of their salvation perfect through suffering. Talked about the idea there that week of how we were created to give God glory, We moved away from that purpose through sin, so God is now saving us and sanctifying us back to that position where we can give him glory, and it's our job to do that with whatever life he gives us, whether he's blessed us with a ton of money or whether he's blessed us with no money, right? And we use the analogy of the Clemson head coach who's a believer who has multiple houses and millions of dollars that come in every year versus the guy who's in Thailand ministering to people with leprosy right? Both are believers, both are children of God, and both have been given very different lifestyles to glorify God with. And honestly, Paul would say neither, neither one is better, right? Because he says, I've learned to be content whether I have a lot or whether I have a little. I've learned to be content with whatever God's given me, and I'm going to give him glory in the midst of those situations, right? And so um, that's what kind of the focus was of chapter two, that we need to pay attention to God through his word, and not drift, not neglect our salvation, not drift, but glorify him with our lives. Um, that we want to seek to know him and obey him through our own personal study, through the public reading and teaching of scripture in the local church. And again, the whole purpose of our increasing in our knowledge and understanding is not to become smart theologians. It's to not drift away from the faith. Um, and we talked about that more even in the last couple of weeks, and so we'll get there as we rehash some of this stuff. But again, our assurance and our confidence in remaining faithful till the end is tied to our knowledge and understanding of God's promises. The more we know, the more confident we are in our salvation, the more confident we are in persevering until the very end. All right? Um, So the application from that week, is your time in the Word proportional to your desire to not drift? Is your fight against temptation proportional to your desire to bring God glory? Right? So if my life is supposed to bring God glory, obviously when I'm falling into sin, that, that's not bringing him glory, right? So I fight against sin, I fight against temptation so that my life is a reflection of his glory. I, I fight to be in the word, I fight to, to be in the word so that I don't drift from holding tight to Jesus when trials and difficulties come, okay? So our time in the word and our fight against temptation needs to be proportional to what we would verbally say about not wanting to drift or not wanting to have our lives fail to give God glory, okay? Keep that in mind because the next three sermons are leading to our next big response application for today, all right? So that brings us into Hebrews chapter 3, where we talked about the dangers of hardening our heart like the children of Israel did. So if you've got your Bibles open, 
flip to Hebrews chapter 3, and it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our, our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And so that week we talked about how we must avoid Israel's mistake of letting our hearts grow hard to God's word by seeking to increase our trust and obedience for him with the help of others in our life who, who share the same goals. Right? And so the author is just kind of reminding us, he's like, man, look, what every, look at what all the Israelites experienced. Right? Like they, they experienced so much of God's goodness, so much of God's power, so much of God's mercy, and they hardened their hearts to it. They, they didn't do anything with it. They didn't respond and trust him at times when they needed him most. And we highlighted the two events there where they, they needed water and they grumbled and complained and said, we should have stayed in Egypt because we're out here now and we don't have any water and we're gonna die of thirst. And God miraculously provided water. Then we talked about how they were at the brink of going into the promised land and conquering it. And, and they doubted God's provision in that, man, the people in there are really big and they're really strong and they're really powerful. We won't be able to defeat them is what the 10 spies told them. And, and God says, man, why aren't you trusting me after all the things that you've seen me do? I've delivered you from the Egyptians. I've delivered you from a great army already. And they doubted him and they hardened their hearts and they didn't yield to the things that they knew to be true. And, and so it's a, it's a reminder to us that, man, we could, we could experience a lot of God's goodness, that we could, we could grow up in church and see a lot of God's power and a lot of God's mercy and a God changing a lot of people's lives and still find ways to harden our hearts if we're not careful. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a warning for us. That's a warning for those of us that have children to pray against that, to work hard against our kids, seeing so much of God and yet hardening their hearts to him. And one of the ways that we're told to, to fight against that happening in our life is to, is to seek exhortation from others and to play a role of exhorting others, right? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we need other people to help us push back against unbelief in our life. Um, 
we're challenged to consider Jesus and how to keep our hearts set on Jesus. We're, we're challenged to take care and to do things intentionally in our life to avoid having a hardened heart. One of those things we just said, to ask other people to help us along the way, which is where that response application comes from. Share your struggles, share your temptations with your accountability group so that people can do this for you, okay? Um, also in chapter three, there's, there's questions that arise about uh, the security of a believer's salvation, right? And so we talked a little bit about that too, that there's not the, the desire by the author to cause us to doubt our salvation. Instead, what the author is wanting us to do is to see that the only way that we're truly saved now is if we persevere to the end. We don't become saved if we persevere to the end. It's if we persevere to the end, then we were truly saved right now. So he's distinguishing between those who are and aren't saved based on their perseverance. He's saying true Christians persevere. People that aren't true Christians, people that that have given profession of faith, but it's not a true profession, they won't persevere. So he's saying if you're a true Christian, persevere. Make sure you understand that that's an expectation that you will persevere till the very end. All right, so application from that week, do I show a pattern of listening and applying the word of God while seeking and responding to exhortation to push back against unbelief? And that's, again, a a chance for us to kind of pause and step back and say, okay, am I putting myself under the authority of God's word? Is, Is it a priority for me and my family to be here on Sundays and to put myself under the the public proclamation of God's word? And then is it a priority for me personally to be in the word uh, at various times throughout the week as an individual? Whatever that schedule may look like for you, are you faithfully putting yourself under God's word so that you can listen to it and you can apply it? And then are you showing a pattern of of inviting people to kind of know what's going on in your life, even if that's people outside of your accountability group? Are are there people in your life that that you consider close enough to invite to know you on a deeper level who can exhort you and who can identify when you start to drift? Because I'm going to tell you, once somebody starts to drift and once their heart starts to become hardened, it's harder to bring them back and rescue them. The sooner you can recognize a pattern of drifting and hardening, the better they're, they're far more easier to, re- to, to rescue in that, in that time frame. And so that's part of why we even want accountability in our life is so that somebody hopefully can recognize our first moments of drifting versus somebody looking up and saying, man, where's that person been? Like, it's been a long time since, since we've seen them or heard from them or, or know what's going on with them. And, and by that point, it may be too late to rescue them, okay? Um, so do you show a pattern of listening and applying the word of God while seeking and responding to exhortation to push back against unbelief. And that brings us to Hebrews chapter 4, and then I'm going to give you another application for today after we talk about chapter 4. All right, so Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again He appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as he did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So for Hebrews chapter um, four, we said we must strive for ongoing belief in the promises of God as a result of fearing the example of Israel in order to immediate enjoy immediate aspects of God's rest now and the eternal implications of God's rest in the future. So we talked a lot about God's rest that week. And what does it even mean to enter into God's rest? And I told you guys that the goal is to enter into God's rest from a couple of different angles. One, the, the, the pressure to feel like we have to self-validate ourselves to God, right? Like most religions teach that your good works have to outweigh your bad works for you to receive approval from God. And so most people who are heavy into their religion feel this ongoing pressure daily to rack up good works in, in light of the bad works that they have. And if they can get it to, to kind of balance out at, at worst or at least increase in such a way where they've got more than the other, then they feel like they've increased their chances of, of a better afterlife, All right? And that, that's a lot of pressure to live under if you're constantly trying to evaluate yourself because nobody keeps good, accurate records of that, right? And so part of entering into God's rest is realizing that we don't validate ourselves before God as followers of Jesus, that Jesus has come to do that for us, that he has come, he's made himself like us so that he experiences everything that we experience yet without sin. He serves as a better high priest to, to, uh, to forgive us of those sins and to, to earn that righteousness that can then be given to us so that we can be in right fellowship with God. So being in God's rest means, man, I recognize now that I don't have to validate myself before God. I also enter into God's rest when I realize all these aspects of his sovereignty over the universe and how I've been created to give him glory with whatever God gives to me, that I can be content in the midst of difficulties, right, and trust his goodness in the midst of those difficulties. And so I can find what Paul describes as a contentment level that, that has to be learned based on our understanding of God's sovereignty and his desire to work good for his children. And then there's this this bigger piece of rest that's extended to us that comes when Jesus comes back, and that's when we get to enter into a rest where there are no more trials and there are no more temptations. To be in an eternal existing state where we're never tempted to sin, we never have to fight against the temptation to sin, and we never have to experience trials and difficulties again. Like that's the ultimate rest that's extended to us as believers if we hold fast to the end. Right? And so the author here is inviting us to enter into this rest. And so the goal is to enter that rest and to bring others with us. To enter the rest, we must believe God in what he says. And to believe him, we must hear him by placing ourselves under the word. We must remain diligent in our belief so that we don't enter into unbelief and disobedience. So going back there to the beginning of chapter 4, 
the idea of um, entering in the rest, we must believe what he says and put ourselves under the word. It says in verse two, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. All right, so the idea there again is the, the children of Israel heard all the same things. They just didn't respond in faith to it. So we as believers, we need to put ourselves in position to hear the message of God, to hear the promises of God, but to handle it differently than they did, to actually respond to it in faith. All right, so from an application standpoint, what evidence is there in your life that a fear of unbelief is leading you to strive daily so you do not fall when trials and temptations come? All right, and so what we're saying here is that, man, if you're not careful, you fall into unbelief and you fall away from the faith when trials and temptations come. And so I challenged us to think of it like a surgeon who over prepares for the heart surgery through all of the studies leading up to the heart surgery right? They, they work very hard. They work very hard to know how to respond when that difficult situation comes. They know exactly how to respond in it, right? And so what we want to do is we want to adequately prepare so that when trials and temptations come our way, man, we're ready to hold fast. We're ready to hold fast to Jesus and not wander or drift, all right? So think of it in terms of you may not have difficulties right now. You may not have a lot of trials right now. You may not have a lot of temptation right now. But those things will come, and the better prepared we are for those things, the more likely we are to be successful in those times. All right? And so response application. First one, again, communicate your current struggles, your current temptations to your accountability group so they can properly exhort you. And then number two, this is a great opportunity for us to pause and step back and say, am I content with my current plan for being in the word, right? So I, I've been very careful ever since we planted the church that, that I steer clear of telling you the only way to be obedient to God is to do your quiet time or your personal study like this, right? Like we've never told you that the Bible ever mandates what that's supposed to look like, how long that's supposed to look like, nothing like that, right? What I've always challenged you is to be in God's word in a way that is maturing you regularly, okay? Now, I believe that we have far more advantage than the people who were originally hearing a lot of these things. We, we just have a lot more advantages, right? Like we, we've re- mentioned even recently, they didn't even have a copy of the Bible to take around with them to their workplace and to look at on study, on breaks, right? Like they didn't have it. A lot of it was committed to memory and, and just oral traditions of being passed down verbally, we have copies. We have copies of it in a language that we can understand. Right? We have access to so many resources to know God's word that that increases the expectation for what that looks like in our life, I think. Right? Even when we talk about, um, I was thinking about this this morning, as we get into chapter 7 next week, the whole idea of Jesus being a better priest than Melchizedek, so, some of us may look at that and say, that doesn't seem like, like the deeper doctrines. But keep in mind, it was absolutely a deeper doctrine for them coming out of the Old Testament understanding of, of the Messiah, right? I think even what's considered basic doctrine and deeper doctrine probably is different for us than it would have been for the Hebrews that were reading this originally because we have so much uh, advantage about knowing who Jesus is because we have the whole New Testament written. Right? They didn't have the whole New Testament written when they were reading the book of Hebrews for the very first time. 
All right, so it's a, it's a great opportunity for us to all step back and say, okay, weekly, what, is, what, what, what does it look like for me to be in God's word? Is that proportional to my desire to not drift, to not grow hard, to not wander from the faith? And for us to say, okay, I'm not content with what that looks like right now. I I need to make some changes. Maybe I need to be in God's word more, or maybe I want to go deeper into God's word in the time that I am in God's word. But it's it's a time for all of us to pause and say, what does it look like for me to be in God's word right now as an individual Christian, and and am I good with that? And obviously, all of us would say, man, I'd love to be in God's word more. I'd love to know more about God. But realistically, with your schedule, with things that are going on in your life, is it, is it, is it, a, is it at a good place right now? Or have you wandered away and kind of drifted away from prioritizing God's word in your life? And is this a great time for you to reexamine that and, and make some appropriate changes? Okay, we're going to continue throughout this book to talk about the need for God's word to be changing our life. The only way it changes our life is if we're putting ourselves under it. What does that look like in your life right now, and do any changes need to be made? All right, that brings us into Hebrews chapter 5. And this is where the author really shows us that Jesus is a better high priest than any priest that came before him. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for, the, for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Our summary sentence for for this a couple weeks ago. We are called to obey Jesus as the better priest by listening intentionally to his word so that we can demonstrate skilled application on a daily basis while also finding ways to teach it to others as well. So he delves into a little bit of his discussion about Melchizedek and then takes this pause and says, let me just tell you, I'd love to tell you a whole lot more about this, but I feel like you guys aren't capable of hearing it, that that you're stuck in a state of immaturity where we really need to back up and go over some of the more basic principles of God before we can get into the deeper stuff. And so he talks about this concept of immaturity and maturity. And so I wanted to kind of go back to that and us hit on that a little bit. How does he describe somebody who's immature? Well, he describes them as somebody who is dull in hearing, who, who there's a lack of application in their life, poor decision-making in daily affairs, and they're unable to teach. I mean, those are the things that he highlights just right here in this passage. He says, 
It's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again. So they're certainly dull of hearing. They're unable to teach other people stuff that they should be able to teach them. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Then he describes maturity and he describes it in the way that they are trained to discern good from evil. So from an immaturity standpoint, what does it look like to be an immature Christian? Well, it's somebody who, who is dull in their hearing of God's word, meaning that they hear it maybe frequently, but they're not very faithful to do much with it, which leads kind of into that second description. There's a lack of application with God's word, and there's poor decision-making in daily affairs, right? So, so what he's highlighting here as a state of maturity is it's an ability for somebody to live outside of this church context on a Sunday Monday morning, throughout the week, it's somebody who lives on a daily basis through the lens of God's word. Like my decision-making, the way that I spend my time, the way that I spend my money, the way that I use my resources, all those things are flowing out of an understanding of what God's word has to say about those things, right? To me, a great picture of spiritual maturity is the qualifications listed for a deacon, Because these aren't meant to be superior Christians where there's only a few of them in the church. What he describes when he describes the qualifications of a deacon, man, this is somebody who is maturing in their faith. Somebody who can help pull other people towards maturity. Because there's nothing real radical that's listed there in in the, the descriptions of a deacon. It's all fruits of the Holy Spirit. Things that should be demonstrated in the life of each believer. It's somebody who's showing hospitality, who's not controlled by the things of this world, but instead controlled by the Holy Spirit. These are things that should be aspirations for for all people within the church. It's why even when we talked about our goals and, and God raising up additional leadership within our church, the challenge for you is to read through that description of what it means to be a deacon within the church and to identify areas where you're immature and to seek to grow in those areas because that's what it looks like to be a maturing Christian. He says an immature Christian is somebody who's hearing the word but not really doing anything with it. And because they're not doing anything with it, they leave church on Sunday and they go to work on Monday morning and they make poor decisions that, that, that aren't filtered through God's word. They, um, they're immature in their behavior according to 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 2. Remember we talked about that passage in regards to milk as well? And those were guys and girls who who were basically not doing the same thing. They were not listening and applying God's word, and it was affecting their behavior. So it's not just that uh, immaturity means that you don't have the knowledge and the wisdom about God's word. It's also that you don't have the behavior to line up with what God's word says, what it looks like to conform to the image of Jesus, right? So immaturity is dull in hearing, lack of application, poor decision-making in daily affairs, immaturity in behavior, unable to teach other people some of the basic things about God. And again, there's no expectation that everybody in the church should be able to formally teach doctrine or theology or or the things about God. What we're talking about is that everybody that's a maturing Christian ought to be able to sit down with somebody and have meaningful conversation where they are passing on truths about the basic principles of what it means to follow Jesus. There's some basic things that we ought to be able to talk fluently about to be able to instruct and guide and answer questions to somebody that may be inquisitive about some of those things. So what maturity looks like, it means understanding the basics, applying the basics, intentionally responding to teaching, 
and then showing wisdom in daily decisions, right? Showing the ability to discern good from evil is what he talks about. Being skilled in righteousness is what he talks about. That's his description of maturity. It's somebody who leaves church and throughout the week, man, they look like somebody who knows what God's word says based on how they are living their life, how they're responding to trials, how they're responding to temptations, right? How they're pushing back and fighting against some things that are the works of the flesh. Maturity looks like somebody who is growing in those areas. Immaturity looks like somebody who is content to stay where they are in those areas, all right? So from an application standpoint, I said, what areas do you feel immature in with the need for reteaching? And what areas do you feel skilled in with the ability to teach others? So from a response application for today, we talked about 10 doctrines or 10 topics that we just kind of identified and said, okay, based on where we live in time, post a lot of the New Testament writings, we feel like as elders that, that these are some things that we would want everybody in this church who is a maturing Christian to be able to have meaningful conversation about, right? Not to, not to lead a four-week study on the, on the topic of justification, but to, to know the definition of justification because the Bible uses that word, right? And so if we're gonna be faithful with God's word, we need to know the definition of some of those big words, right? To know what they mean, to be able to, to, to share that with an unbeliever, to share that with a, a new believer. So from a response application, I want you to look back through that list to identify which of these topics you could not speak confidently about and to plan a course of study to change that. And again, I'm not telling you that you need to study the the topic of justification for the next 10 weeks because you're going to have to give a five-week study on it later down the road. I'm just saying that we ought to be at a point because most of us have grown up in church for a long period of time and most of us have heard countless sermons that we ought to be able to sit down and have coffee and somebody read a verse that mentions the word justification and say, man, what does the word justification mean? And for you to be able to expound upon that. For you to be able to explain, what does the biblical concept of justification mean? Because it's the gospel, right? It's the gospel. Our kids need to know what justification means. They need to know that they never will have to validate themselves before God. That they can be justified through the work of Jesus Christ. They can be treated as from a legal standpoint, treated as though they obeyed God's law perfectly because Jesus did it in their place. We ought to be able to talk about the role of good works because most people that are coming to Christ are coming from some type of system where good works have been abused, where they've been told you have to be good for God to love you. Now, the Bible talks a ton about good works, right? Ephesians 2 very specifically says that we are saved for good works. But the implications of Ephesians 2 is that the good works come after we're saved, that we are saved to then work in a good way. And that's through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? The deity of Jesus, man, it's what separates us from other religions. The claims about Jesus, God's sovereignty certainly shapes my my response to a lot of the things that come into my life. To be able to know and trust that God is good and that he works good for his children. How to study the Bible, Eternal security, second coming, sin, trinity, resurrection. Man, this is, a, this is a great thing for you to look at and say, man, I want to know more about that. I need to know more about that. I don't think I could have a conversation about that. It's a great way for you to, to step back and say, is my time in the word sufficient? And if it's not, what do you need to do? Well, start with these 10. 
and determine any course of action of study with any of these 10 that you feel like, I'm just not very fluent in that. I'd like to know more about that. All right? And then the last chapter, Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled from refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A lot of conversation here about assurance of salvation because there's the aspect of one who has been exposed to so many things and then falling away. We said assurance of salvation is tied directly to God's unchangeable promises and Jesus's superior priestly work, okay? So there's nothing in this chapter that would tell us that my salvation is based on the good works that I do. Everything in this chapter tells us it's about God making an oath, a promise that cannot be changed because his character wouldn't allow him to change it. But on top of that, he swore that he wouldn't change it. So a, a, a person of character who never changes, making a promise or swearing and making an oath, it's like, it's like double assurance there right? And it's Jesus, it's his promises are tied to the fact that Jesus has done everything necessary. We talked last week about him being that forerunner. He, he paves the way. He opens the door for us to have access to God's presence. He goes into the Holy of Holies so that we can follow after him into the Holy of Holies. No other priest could ever do that. Every other priest went in there by themselves and came out by themselves. They could not bring anybody in there with them. Jesus's work is superior. He opens the floodgates. He allows us to enter into God's presence. Our assurance of salvation is tied directly to that. Our confidence about our salvation increases as we mature in our understanding about that stuff, right? So the more we know about God's promises, the more we are going to feel an assurance of salvation because it's never about our works. It's about the work of Jesus. And the only way to really fully grasp that is to keep learning and understanding that, striving to maturity in that. 
right? If you want to know that you're saved and have an assurance of salvation, you need to know what justification means, right? You need to know what that concept is because the more you know about that concept, the more you know, man, I am saved. And even though I may have had a difficult week and I yielded to some temptation and I let some trials get the best of me this week, it does not affect my salvation. I am sealed until the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit, right? I will keep persevering until the end because I'm a true believer, all right? Um, so what, what's being highlighted here in this chapter are people that look like Christians, claim to be Christians, but end up showing themselves to not be Christians, much like the Israelites in the wilderness, much like the different soils in the parable that Jesus tells about seed falling on various types of heart soil. Uh, we see people throughout Scripture or different passages in Scripture that uh, talk about Christians and non-Christians being mixed up and sometimes looking very much alike. Uh, the parable that Jesus tells about the wheat and the tares where the enemy comes in and sows the tares amongst the wheat and the workers are telling Jesus or telling the, telling the, the, the boss, hey, should we go in there and try to clean that up? And he says, no, we're just going to let them grow. And by the time they grow till the very end when it's harvest time, then we'll be able to see the difference. Right now, it can be hard to tell the difference, right? He says, as the wheat starts to grow and the tares start to grow, sometimes they look a lot alike. But over the long haul, over longevity, you start to see the difference based on the fruit that they bear, right? And so these people described here in this passage are people who are not really Christians. They've been exposed to the gospel, but they've rejected it. It's that unpardonable sin that Jesus talks about when he heals the, the, the guy and the Pharisees say, you're the devil. And Jesus says, that makes no sense. Like, I'm working against the works of the devil. Why would I be the devil? But, he says, you have, you have basically denounced me because I've given you everything. And instead of yielding to me in faith, you're ready to crucify me for being a blasphemer and being a devil. At that point, there's no hope for you because you've had every, you've had every opportunity. And we don't know when that time comes, but the, at least the idea here is introduced that some people get such an exposure to the gospel and reject it to such a great level that it's never really extended to them again. It's never really offered to them again. But what's great here is the author says, I don't think you guys fit into that category. I think you guys are going to keep maturing. You are going to keep pressing on. All right? Um, but one of the things that we're told to do here is to imitate other people and that's one of the ways that we keep persevering. He talks about us finding people to imitate their faith. Such an important part of growing up as a Christian, such an important part of maturing as a Christian is to identify other people that are worth following after. Things that we struggle with, man, let's find people that are strong in those areas and we can learn to, 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 to grow and mature in those areas by following after others who are strong in those areas. From an application standpoint, um, I challenged you last week, to, to, to ask yourself, am I more mature in my faith today than I was a year ago at this time? Why or why not? So if you think back to a year ago today, do you feel like there are any markers in your life that would show how you are more mature in your faith today than you were a year ago? Or are you exactly the same? Or have you regressed potentially? What are some of the factors that, have, that would lead you to answer one way or another there? And then Number two was, who are the people that you have identified in your life that you want to be like, and how are you striving to imitate them? Have you put anybody in place in your life as somebody that you say, I want to be more like them, specifically in this area, and because of that, I'm intentionally trying to spend time with them, or I'm intentionally trying to learn from them because I've identified some things about them that are worth seeing reproduced in my life? 
you have anybody like that? And if not, why? Step back and think and be an honest assessor of your own self and be humble enough to admit that others are maybe more mature than you in some areas. And instead of comparing yourself to them in a negative way, say, man, I want to be like them. I want to push myself to be like them. From a response application, what we always try to do at the beginning of each year is to step back and do kind of a personal spiritual inventory to to help set the course for the year. I would challenge you to start thinking about some of those things now. Begin thinking about spiritual and personal goals you would like to create as we approach a new year to help ensure growth and maturity between now and this time next year. What are some things that you can do as we get ready to move into 2019 that will ensure that you are much more mature than you are right now? What are some things that you can absolutely plan to do next year? Maybe some things that you can absolutely plan to budget for next year to ensure that you can even participate in some things that will help push you towards maturity. Right? Like, like we'll, we'll start talking about the, the youth getting ready to go to Snowbird um, real soon. Man, that, that's certainly one step that our youth can take to make sure that they are growing in their faith, to put themselves under a week of discipleship and teaching through Snowbird, right? But, but for, for our ladies, like, like we want to we take you guys every year, as many that can go to the, the retreat in May. Man, begin thinking now, like, how am I going to handle childcare? How can I make sure that I have the opportunity to go? If that's a way that you identify as, as being a way for you to mature in your faith, you don't have to go on that. But this is a chance to kind of step back and say, before we get it into 2019, what are some things that I want to be intentional about in my life to help ensure my growth and maturity so that when we get to this point next year, right, the 1st of November, that you can say, I'm more mature in my faith than I was a year ago from now. What are some things that you can do? Begin thinking about some spiritual and personal goals that you can set to ensure that. All right, so today, four things for you to do immediately. One, to communicate your current temptations and struggles to your accountability group so they can be in prayer for you. Number two, step back and assess whether or not your time in the Word is at a contentment level for you, a healthy level for you. And if not, are there what, what changes need to be made to, to get there? Okay. Number three, to look back through those 10 topics, those 10 doctrines that we talked about, and to, to determine if there's any in that list that you don't feel like you could have a healthy conversation with somebody else about and chart kind of a course of study to fix that. All right, and then number four, begin thinking through some things that you want to make sure happen in 2019 to help ensure some maturity in your faith, some things that you would like to see happen, some things that you would like to see done in your life, to be intentional to set some of those things, to make some plans and not just leave it to chance, right? Rarely does somebody grow in an area of maturity in anything by chance, right? Like anybody that wants to get better at something, to to learn more about something, whether that's spiritual things or whether that's earthly things, there has to be some steps taken to get better at it, right? You don't don't become a major league baseball player by by chance, right? You don't just wake up one day and say, I think I'm going to enter the MLB draft, Right? Like, it, like it's, it's years of hitting instruction. It's years of fielding instruction to prepare, to grow, to mature, to get to the point where you can do something like that. It's the same with spiritual things, too. We have to take some steps to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, realizing that God is the one that's going to, to produce the change in our life. But we have to put ourselves in position to experience that change. So what are some things that we can do 
as we get ready to head into the new year. All right, that's, that's where we've been the last six weeks in Hebrews. Um, real quick before we enter into our time of communion and then we enter into a time of eating lunch together, what we want to start, do, start doing moving forward coming out of that discussion of the five-year goals, the five-year review that we did, um, is to kind of quickly go back over those things and then to make any changes to the right side of the board to give you an update on ways that you participate in helping us see that vision carried out here at Sovereign Hope. Okay, so I want to touch on a couple of those things real quickly, and we're going to change three of the things on the right side of the board so that we can continue to move towards fulfilling that vision that's on the left side, okay? Um, So first, first goal that we set, first vision piece that we have there is to develop an active presence in our community. Our goal is to establish an active presence in our community by creating intentional ways for our members to serve the less fortunate together, specifically targeting opportunities to care for widows and orphans. So for the next two years, we're trying to really nail down our local ministry efforts, what we're going to do locally to help take care of people. The action that we're moving forward to uh, now, what you can do now to help participate. Number one, we've, we've talked with some of you who signed up to help pilot some of our efforts with the CPS, the Coweta Pregnancy Services, and with the foster care endeavors. Okay, so we've got some people that have signed up to do some of the meals uh, for people that are foster care. We've got some people that have signed up to do the babysitting. We've got some people signed up to do the, the full-on class to either provide respite care or to maybe even enter into the, uh, the concept of foster care themselves. Okay, so that, that foster care class is starting in January. Um, we've communicated with some people about the possibilities of them taking on the pilot role of the meals and the babysitting. Okay, so those that have we've contacted and you know, people signed up. We tried to identify people that had only signed up for one area. We're trying to get connected and, and, and get some pilot people in place just to see if there's a need for some of these things, okay? Um, we've got some people that are, that are signed up to help with the upcoming fundraiser uh, in April for the CPS, and so we're starting to collect items to try to help contribute to the auction, all right? We've got one of our church members who's exploring the possibility of being the board member for CPS, Um, So all those people that we've touched base with, your role is to really serve and to give us feedback so we can determine any further needs in those areas. And then for everyone else who's not a part of that pilot program, we need you to really decide, really be in prayer about whether you can participate in the fundraiser on April 18th, okay? Start looking at your calendars now. This is one of my favorite things that we do here. Um, We typically have two tables, and I think a table seats 10 eight or to eight ten so at most we've typically allowed we've typically taken um about 18 of 18 of our church members um to this thing man i'd love to see us have a need for three or four tables um this is an opportunity for you to come and to um spend some of the money that god's given you through the auction it's money that goes to the cps to help um, them raise funds it's an opportunity to be blessed to hear uh, firsthand some of the things that they have seen God do over the past year within their ministry. Um, so, man, I'd love to increase our exposure there. We want to be all in with the CPS as much as possible. This is a way for everybody to be involved. So be praying about the possibilities of participating on April 18th. It's a Thursday night because we'll start doing signups at the first of the year to get tables purchased. And so uh, it'd be great for us to post that on the city and boom, we just have people start signing up because you know automatically You've already factored in that day, and you know you're going to be able to participate, okay? Number two, 
growing and equipping more leaders. We want to see our leadership grow as needed as we look towards the possibilities of, of expanding our church into other churches in the area. Um, our two-year goal is to really nail down Marcus's role within our church. Lord willing, that will be as an elder. And if that's the case, we will need to appoint a new deacon to take over for him. Um, and so we've already started talking about that as elders and praying through who God would have uh, raise up to be in that position. These goals are still the same. Okay, so these goals aren't changing on the board, but just as a reminder, we want you guys praying for and examining Marcus from now until May uh, as he potentially steps into that role as elder. I challenge everybody, man, spend some time with him. Spend some time with him by having him over to your house, taking him out to dinner, him and his family, get to know him on a more personal level. Number two, going right along with what we talked about maturity today, pursue qualification personally by looking at those uh, qualifications for a deacon. And then number three, pray for God to call more leaders, uh, to raise more leaders up within our church. We've had uh, different people express um, you know, possible interest in, in, in increasing their capacity to lead within our church. So continue to pray that, that God will move and prompt people um, according to his will. Number three, we talked about growing our membership with the purpose of planting. I want to see our, our, our membership grow. Um, our two-year goal is to develop an organized plan for welcoming and acclimating visitors within our church. And so action towards that goal, um, things that we're wanting to change, man, we really want you guys to be intentional with our newest members. And so this is going to be a great way for us to just remind you of who's recently joined our church, right? So these are our newest members, and we want you to be very intentional about welcoming them and acclimating them so that they, they, they no longer see themselves as new members. They just see themselves as members of our church, right? So just as a reminder, who has joined recently and who we need to be targeting in our efforts to really make sure they're always included within our church. And then number two, as we're talking through as elders, things that we want to see done from a visitor standpoint, I want all of us to just kind of get into this mindset that when somebody is visited for the second time, like on back-to-back Sundays, that, that that probably warrants us reaching out to them for some type of meal, okay? Whether that's you having them over to your house, which I would not uh, say is a, is a requirement or an expectation, if it's just simply you saying, hey, we'd love for you to go to lunch with us today, um, that somebody who has visited our church for a second time has, has obviously seen enough the first time to say, hey, we'll come back a second time. Um, for you to be very intentional about including them and potentially going an extra step by inviting them to a meal, whether that's right after church on a Sunday or maybe sometime that week. We just want everybody to start kind of getting into that mindset because what we would love to do is have some people specifically within our C groups who, who have that role within our church to identify people who are visiting and visiting regularly to really acclimate them through uh, meal-type fellowships, okay? So start getting to that mindset of if you see somebody, you've seen them more than once, but you know they're a visitor, man, let's reach out to them and see if we can't connect with them through a meal, all right? Um, Develop a plan to plant when the timing is right. Um, our two-year goal for this is we want to develop a potential plan for how to plant when that time is right. This doesn't change at all. We would still ask that you would pray for us as elders to have wisdom about how to handle growth that God may bring to our church when that time comes, okay? And then the last one, connect with mission-minded ministries that disciple, translate, and plant churches. We're really wanting to reevaluate our mission focus, increase our mission focus, find new people to add to those we're already supporting, um, particularly people who are involved in church planting, Bible translation, and discipleship, right? Um, we're already connected with Snowbird. 
and we just had two couples come back from the marriage retreat. One of the big things that they're asking for prayer about right now is the possibility of expanding their facilities, all right? And so they've gotten some really cool stuff recently from the county about uh, the county paying for some things sewage-wise that has held them up from being able to expand the camp facilities um, they're going to come in and put them on city sewage, which is huge because they've been tied to um, septic. Yeah, and sometimes weeks are heavy and the septic is not working like it should be working. And so that always limits the amount of campers they can bring on based on how many are going to be using the, the toilets and the showers. And so to be tied into city water is going to be huge. And they're exploring the possibilities of being able to increase some of that in the near future, even looking at having like a middle school section of the campus and a high school section of the campus, bringing in some temporary stuff for even uh, next summer and the next couple of summers to add to the people that they're already having on camp. So let's be, let's be intentional to pray for the, the ministry that we're definitely connected with right now with Snowbird and to particularly pray for something that they've mentioned uh, at both these marriage retreats because both couples expressed that this was mentioned as kind of a point of prayer. So let's, let's be praying for them about that possible expansion for them. And then number two, pray for clarity on missionaries for us to support moving forward as a church. So the elders and deacons are talking about some different, different people that we know, different missionaries that we're aware of, different organizations, really trying to hone in on what will be good for our church and our church's resources to invest in and how that'll help connect us as members and even some of our kids into short-term opportunities to go and serve alongside some people. So be in prayer for us as we're kind of working through different organizations, different possibilities that God would really give us clarity as to who and what to be involved with um, so that we can connect you guys with those people as well. Okay, so the big things new on the boards, number one, our pilot people be fully invested in that, give us feedback so we know if we keep it or, or, or discard it. Everybody else be praying about whether you can participate on April 18th um, for the fundraiser. The third one, um, to, to get into the mindset of second-time visitors, connect with them through a meal, right? And then also making sure that our new members feel absolutely welcomed and a part of our group moving forward. Um, and then the last one, for us to add Snowbird's possible expansion to our prayer list personally and then to continue to pray that God would give clarity for future missionaries that we might support as well. Okay, any questions about any of that stuff? All right. Um, we're going to, as we always do for our application Sundays, enter into a time of partaking communion together. Um, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the passage that we typically go to for instructions about that. Um, man, this connects so greatly with what we've been talking about in the book of Hebrews. Um, us partaking of the Lord's Supper today is a public demonstration, a public proclamation that we are continuing to hold fast to our anchor, Jesus Christ, that we are continuing to submit in faith to the work of Jesus for our salvation, right? That by partaking of the, blood, the, the bread and the blood, we are, we are saying, man, it's not about my good works. It's about what, what Jesus has accomplished, that those two elements back there represent the high priestly work of Christ, that he made himself like us, tempted as we are, tempted without sin. As we partake of that bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of that, that, that the bread that we eat represents the body of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus. He was made like us, tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
And that when we, when we dip it into the, the grape juice, it represents the blood of Christ that was shed because we were tempted like Jesus, yet with sin, right? And we need to be forgiven of our sins. And he comes to be the high priestly, uh, the, he comes to demonstrate that high priestly work. He doesn't offer sacrifices for his sins like all the other priests had to do. He offers himself as a sacrifice for the people that he represents. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or 1 Corinthians chapter 11, sorry. Says, um, verse 17 of chapter 11, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order for those that are genuine among you must be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead of his own, uh, with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you not despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. There's this aspect of unity that comes from partaking of the Lord's Supper, and it's meant to unify us. And that was not happening at this church in Corinth. And so Paul reminds them that by partaking of the Lord's Supper, we are demonstrating a, an attitude of unity with each other. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we're going to do that together today. And again, it's, a, it's an outward visual sign that we are saying yes to the things of Jesus, that we don't want to drift, that we don't want our hearts hardened, that we want to keep our, our soil in our hearts soft. We want to continue to receive God's word and see that spring up in our life and produce crop, produce fruit. And so by partaking of the Lord's Supper today, we're not saving ourselves. We're not earning our salvation, keeping ourselves saved. We're not doing it because we had a good week last week, right? We're doing it as a demonstration of faith, that our faith is continuing to be placed in the work of Jesus. And so we invite all of our believers this morning to partake. Um, you don't have to be a member of our church to partake, um, but we would ask that only believers partake this morning, that we use this as a, as a tool to communicate the gospel to our kids who maybe can't partake right now because they don't have that profession of faith that we teach them through partaking of the Lord's Supper, what it means to, to be covered by the blood of Jesus, what it means to accept the righteousness of Jesus through his perfect life. I'm gonna pray for us. Tyson's gonna come and uh, invite you to partake after you've had some time to pray and worship personally as well. God, we love you and we thank you for today. We thank you for the chance to, to review, for the chance to be reminded. God, help us not to be dull of hearing the things that are so important. In the context of perseverance, God, help us to see the urgency that we need to consider these things lest we fall into a state of drifting, lest we fall into a state of growing hard, lest we fall into a state of being deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. God, I pray that we would be faithful to exhort each other, to encourage each other. God, I pray that you would use the word and the time that we spend in the word individually to grow us and to mature us. God, we want to be people who are skilled in righteousness. We want to be people who can discern good from evil every single day in our life. We want to be mature. God, I pray that you would bring us to maturity. Help us to apply the things that we've heard today. God, we thank you for the work of Christ, our high priest. We thank you for the fact that he was made just like us, but without sin. And so we can partake of the bread today knowing that he has been perfect in our place. God, we thank you that Jesus didn't need to offer sacrifices for his sins. 
that he was perfect enough to be a sacrifice for ours. So God, I thank you that we can worship today by partaking of the juice, representing the blood that was shed for our sins. God, we thank you that you have come to to purify us and to change us, to bring us back into a state of bringing you glory. Help us to submit to that every single day. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.